Bonjour, ici Esther Bégin. Voici la version podcast de L'Essentiel, mon émission quotidienne à l'antenne de CEPAC. Tonight on Primetime Politics, Brenda Lucky steps down. Just days before the Rouleau inquiry submits its final report, the RCMP commissioner announces her retirement. Did her response to the convoy protest influence her decision? Also. Well, I mean, we saw the reports, and, and I think we need to engage with eyes wide open. Ottawa cuts research funding to any university project with ties to China's military. Do the measures go far enough to protect national security? We'll speak with members of parliament. And. We have to build trust uh, in the community. Tackling anti-black racism, the Trudeau Liberals unveil the next step in their black justice strategy. How will it address systemic bias that has harmed tens of thousands of Canadians? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. We begin tonight with a surprise resignation. Brenda Lucky, the RCMP Commissioner, announcing her retirement and ending her five-year tenure as head of the National Police Force. But her time has been marked by controversies and her announcement comes just days before the Rouleau inquiry hands in its final report to Parliament, that commission examining the federal response to the convoy protest. With more, we are now joined by Pierre-Yves Baudois. He now runs PY Public Safety Management, but he is also a former Deputy Commissioner of the RCMP. Mr. Baudois, thank you for joining us tonight. Good evening. Now, as I said, uh, Brenda Lucky's time as Commissioner has been marked by controversies, and there have been calls uh, for her resignation, if not her termination. Could today's announcement be a preemptive move on her part? Well, um, it's anybody's guess, but uh, what you have to bear in mind is what actually transpired over the last year uh, with her appearance uh, in front of the uh, Rouleau Commission looking at the uh, Emergency Act and, and the fact that um, she uh, readily admitted uh, in her testimony that uh, she was sitting in the cabinet with minister and uh, she failed at the time at what she admitted to actually raise the issue of having a, an operational plan ready when the, uh, they were discussing the, um, uh, the uh, Emergency Measures Act. And that certainly uh, didn't shine a positive light on her leadership, uh, especially around, uh, around cabinet and minister. And as a result of this particular testimonies, uh, there were calls both at the federal and even at the provincial level um, thinking of the uh, Solicitor General out of Alberta that actually called for her resignation in light of this troubling testimony. So the very fact that this comes to us just a few days before the Rouleau inquiry hands over its final report to Parliament comes as no surprise to you? Uh, the timing is certainly interesting considering, like you've indicated, that the Commission will table their report in the coming days. So again, it's just um, in my opinion, um, an indication of uh, the perceived performance that she, she has done in front of this particular commission. And also, if you go back a little further, uh, the, um, the inquiry on the mass casualty in Nova Scotia, also where she testified over a two-day period, uh, 
clearly highlighted uh, some of the points in relation to um, uh, or lack of leadership and also all these red flags about uh, political uh, interference in the ongoing operation and investigation following this uh, tragic mass casualty in Nova Scotia. Well, interestingly, uh, Commissioner Lucky was given the mandate to modernize the RCMP, uh, addressing issues of racism and harassment. But instead, uh, she's now being talked about in relation to what took place in Nova Scotia, the, the convoy protests that took place in Ottawa. What legacy do you think she leaves behind? Well, it's, it's going to be a legacy that uh, is going to be uh, questions in relation to her leadership ability to actually move the RCMP in, in uh, a certain direction with regards to some of the uh, contemporary um, uh, challenges that are faced by the RCMP. There are questions also um, uh, across our, our nation with regards to the RCMP role uh, within uh, the communities, whereas um, uh, discussions are taking place in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and, uh, and the Maritimes in relation to the need to maybe create their own provincial police or municipal police and revisit the mandate of the RCMP as such. So uh, there, there appear to have been a, a leadership uh, vacuum that kind of opened up these types of discussion uh, across our nation. Well, I was going to ask you that question because here we have the RCMP dealing with issues so complex now, um, among them uh, systemic racism, uh, allegations of harassment within the force, and the country so large as well, uh, the force serving both rural and urban areas. Does the force in its current form make any sense anymore? Well, uh, valid questions that is, that is being discussed, uh, and I've had recently the um, a, a very a animated conversation in relation to exactly this, where the RCMP should fit. And uh, there are more and more um, voices that express issues in relation to the current model uh, of policing for our country. Because you're looking, for instance, at Surrey, B.C., uh, the municipality wanted to uh, basically start their own municipal police forces, uh, the transition was uh, somewhat challenging, and now following the election of a new mayor, the process has stopped, but it certainly raised the issue of, of policing in our country uh, at the municipal, provincial, and federal level. Uh, quickly running out of time, but I do want to ask you one final question. Uh, Brenda Lucky says that her last day will be March the 17th. There are still a few weeks until that day comes about. How do you think these next few days will be, or what do you think these next few days will be like for her as she counts down until retirement begins? Um, the, uh, having experienced this uh, with, uh, with uh, Commissioner Zachardelli and an interim commissioner, uh, the RCMP is going to be in a state of flux, and I strongly encourage uh, the elected official to uh, put in place an interim commissioner that will steer uh, the ship and maintain the ship in the, the appropriate direction. But uh, the last time that uh, when Commissioner Lucky was appointed, uh, there was an interim commissioner that stayed in position for 15 months. That is, in my opinion, way too long. And our elected official needs to put in place a selection committee 
that will make recommendations to uh, the government in relation to a replacement, but sooner would be much better. Yeah, Yves Boudoir, thank you. I really appreciate the time tonight. My pleasure. The federal government is making moves to protect intellectual property, with the industry minister announcing Ottawa will no longer fund research involving foreign governments that pose security risks for this country. Now, this follows a Globe and Mail investigation last month that revealed researchers at 50 Canadian universities were working alongside scientists who had ties to China's military. Here now is Francois-Philippe Champagne from earlier today. We're going to put additional rules to make sure that we protect that. I think that's where Canadians are. Uh, they want to make sure that we have uh, a better protection when it comes to sensitive research and our IP. But I think universities and provinces need to do more. So not only um, I have uh, directed the Granting Council uh, to, with new rules when it comes to sensitive research to protect our IP and our research in Canada, but I've also asked uh, that, that provinces and universities follow suit so that in, in total we have a better framework when it comes to research security in the country. Well, with more on the matter, we're now joined by Talad Nur Mohammed, Liberal MP for Vancouver Granville. He also sits on the Standing Committee for Public Safety and National Security. Michael Chong is the Conservative MP for Wellington Halton Hills in Ontario. He's also Vice Chair of the Special Committee on the Canada People's Republic of China Relationship. And Heather McPherson is the NDP MP for Edmonton Strathcona, and she too is the Vice Chair of the Special Committee on the Canada People's Republic of China Relationship. Hello to the three of you. Oh, thanks for having us. Uh, Mr. Nur Mohammed, I'll, I'll begin with you. You know, China's National University of Defense Technology, it was actually blacklisted by the United States back in 2015 because of security concerns. Uh, the scientists, Canadian researchers were working with, many had ties to that institution. So why didn't the guidelines introduced by your government in 2021, why didn't it go further than it did? Well, I think what you see today is we've taken the steps that are in response uh, to where and we'd been processing places, as you know, beforehand to review applications. 60% uh, of those applications that were reviewed were declined on national security grounds. So you know, today's, today's step, uh, which will go further in protecting Canadian security, is exactly that. It's a step in response to knowing what we now know in terms of where China's posture is at. Uh, Mr. Chong, what do you make of the government's attempt to address the concerns now? Well, it's their second shot at dealing with this issue. And frankly, all they've done is made an announcement. Uh, yesterday's statement from the three ministers is simply an announcement. The statement makes clear that they've not actually implemented any ban of funding and partnership with Beijing's military. And so this is exactly what happened two years ago in March of 2021 after Conservatives and many other experts uh, out in the intelligence community said to the government, you shouldn't be funding this research. They made an announcement that they were going to introduce something to ban the research. Several months later, in July of 2021, they introduced these guidelines which were not binding and which clearly didn't work. So this, here we are, two years later, and they're taking a second shot at dealing what is a very real national security threat and a very real threat to our intellectual property. This is something that CSIS has highlighted since 2018. And so yesterday, today, all we've had is an announcement uh, I'm skeptical about this government's announcement for good reason, so we'll wait to see what they actually do when they uh, put in place the measures they announced yesterday. Uh, Ms. McPherson, what do you say to what's happening right now? 
Well, I mean, I think I think there's lots of reasons for Canadians to be concerned about this. You know, this is too little, too late. As as was mentioned, it is an announcement. It is not. Um, it is not enough information to make Canadians feel secure. And I think, I think Canadians are rightfully concerned. They're concerned when they hear about, um, you know, illegal police stations or when they hear about um, election fraud, when they hear about things like, uh, like the balloon that we, that we saw shot down. Um, you know, these are things that people are very worried about. And, and when, when the government comes forward with big flashy announcements, unfortunately, this is a government that's very good at big flashy announcements, not so great at follow through. Yeah, I, I wonder, Ms. McPherson, has Canada been compromised by not moving sooner on the issue? Well, certainly, I think that the government, you know, the government has to be has to be acting speedily on this and urgently on this. You know, I, I spoke to to Minister Mencino within the Canada China Committee about the other actions that we'd like this government to take, the other steps that we've been calling for this government to take, and and his response was, well, all things are on the table. I think Canadians don't want to see things on the table. They want the government to be taking steps, concrete steps actionable steps to make sure that our intellectual property is protected, that Canadian citizens and, and people that are, that are living in Canada are protected. Um, you know, and, it, and it's right now we're talking about China, the government of China, but I think it's important to, to acknowledge that the Russian Federation, you know, we have, we have threats coming from that. We have threats coming from the IRGC in Iran like this. This is very, very serious. And the government keeps saying that, yeah, they're thinking about it. I think we should all be concerned when we have a government that is not taking concrete action, but is, but is, you know, as Michael says, making another announcement. Uh, Mr. Nur Mohammed, what do you say to that? And when will we get more details from the government? Well, I think there's a couple of things to note. I think it's important to note that when Mr. Chong's party was in power, there was absolutely no screen whatsoever. It was our government that put in place the screen that resulted in the 60% of those being referred being declined on national security grounds. That was a major step forward from what the Conservatives simply didn't want to do. Now, in respect of concrete action, we've made it very clear this isn't just about China. This is about protecting Canadian interests globally going forward. Three steps, right? Three critical criteria. Number one, if it's in a sensitive sector. Number two, if it's affiliated with a military or uh, th that type of institution. And number three, that it, it's, it's coming from a country that poses a threat to Canada. That research is simply not going to move forward. So it's not just an announcement. It is a very, very clear plan. There is going to be, as to, uh, over the next couple of days, we're going to hear the information moving forward as to how this will actually be implemented. But, you know, Canadians can rest assured that this is a government that has been very responsive in dealing with issues of national security. We saw in terms of the balloon, for example, that the joint command of NORAD, despite what others may say, NORAD is a joint command, and Canada and the US made the decision together to shoot the balloon out. Now, what's really important to note is that we've already recognized the threat that, that China poses, and that the re direct response of, to that was an Indo-Pacific strategy with looks at the entire, which looks at the entire Indo-Pacific region as an area of opportunity in response to a very, very different China. It means leaning into new relationships with partners that can be trusted, partners that are willing to work with Canada uh, in a variety of different areas, and that's exactly how we're going to move forward. Uh, Mr. Chong, I'll get you to respond uh, to what we heard there. Well, I look, the argument that the previous Conservative government didn't do anything is a ridiculous argument, and here's why. The China of today is not the China of 15 years ago. The Russia of today is not the Russia of 15 years ago. In fact, some 15 years ago, President Putin mused about Russia joining NATO, 
in becoming a key NATO ally. Clearly, the Russia back then is not the Russia of today, and the same thing holds for China. Back then, it was governed by Premier Wen and President Hu. Uh, we thought, Western democracy thought, that by deepening and broadening ties with the People's Republic of China back then, that we could gradually help them improve their record on democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. Clearly, that has not been the case, particularly so in the last five years. And that's why Western democracies from the United States to the United Kingdom to France to Germany have woken up to this very real threat that has emerged just in the past five or six years. CSIS started advising the government in 2018 in a very public way about the threat that China presented in the form of foreign interference and in attacking our democratic institutions in the form of threats to our research and, and, and theft of intellectual, intellectual property in the five sensitive areas that they then identified in, uh, in the threats that they presented to other institutions. And this government has failed to act. Uh, they failed to act on foreign interference. We had clear evidence that former MP Kenny Chu was targeted by Beijing's disinformation in the last election campaign. They allowed a Chinese military scientist into the government's top microbiology laboratory, which handles some of the world's most dangerous viruses and pathogens in Winnipeg. They have failed to stop the funding of research with Beijing's military. In fact, they've been funding research with the National University of Defense Technology in sensitive areas like space science, uh, quantum cryptography, photonics, precisely the kinds of technologies a balloon might use. And they have failed to renew NORAD's early warning system. They failed to come forward with a clear plan with clear costs on renewing a system that dates back to the 1980s. So this government has left this country very vulnerable. And I think the past two weeks of balloon incidents have just highlighted how vulnerable Canada has become. Uh, Ms. McPherson, uh, I'm quickly running out of time here, so I'm going to put the last Hi. question to you. Uh, we keep talking about the risk that this ongoing research creates for Canada, but is there a risk of not doing this research, of not collaborating with scientists? Is Canada disadvantaged by pursuing a policy like this? Yeah, and you know, and and I I have to go back to some of the things that that Michael was just saying. Absolutely, this is a different China than that we've had previously. But I but I do want to flag that it was the Harper government, the conservative Harper government, that tied us into a 31-year deal that even conservative MPs at the time were critical of and were saying would put us in a very vulnerable position. So I get it that, that this is a different China, but I think it's a little disingenuous to see, say that the conservatives didn't also put our, our independence, our security, our sovereignty at risk with regards to the FIPA. But, but when, you, when you ask questions about, you know, how do we go forward to ensure that we can continue to do research, I think that there, are, there needs to be some clear guidelines, right? Like we need to make sure anywhere that it intersects with our intellectual property, anywhere that it intersects with our security, our government security, our, our Canadian sovereignty, I think those are areas where it, is, it, it isn't possible for us to have those relationships. In other ways, 100%, we need to be able to work with China on things like climate change, on things like health. You know, there are research areas I think are very important for us to maintain those relationships. But let's have our eyes wide open. Let's let's be reasonable here. You know, there there is uh, there is a line. It's easy to sort of see why some of these research uh, relationships shouldn't exist. I think all Canadians can see that. That's just common sense. And I think that's that's uh, something that's been a little bit lacking. And I. I'm going to say with the Conservatives and the Liberals. 
Well, we'll continue to follow uh, the, the machinations of this, but we uh, thank the three of you tonight. Sorry we're out of time, but thank you again for the time. Thanks so much. Well, a couple of other stories to note tonight, beginning with the Prime Minister who landed in the Bahamas earlier this evening. Justin Trudeau starting a two-day working visit to that country. He is a special guest at a meeting of CARICOM, which is the gathering of the Caribbean heads of government. He is there to talk about a potential mission to Haiti, something the Prime Minister addressed earlier today in Ottawa. Uh, I was uh, glad to be invited by the CARICOM leaders to talk about uh, issues facing the Caribbean, whether it's on infrastructure, whether it's on climate change, whether it's the uh, ongoing partnerships we have with them on, uh, on a range of issues, like energy and others. Uh, we're also going to be uh, talking seriously about Haiti. Uh, obviously, regional uh, support and regional participation in uh, all the work that Canada is doing down in Haiti is important, and uh, I look forward to uh, spending a little time with them tomorrow and coming back tomorrow. Ontario's Premier is voicing support for Toronto's mayor. John Tory says he is leaving municipal office after admitting to an extramarital affair. But Doug Ford wants Tory to stay, the Premier describing the mayor's affair as a personal issue between Tory and his family. If a lefty mayor gets in there, God help the people of Toronto. We saw it before when Rob was there. Taxes going through the roof, you know, out of control spending. Uh, worrying about, you know, lining the pockets of City Hall's coffers. We have a different philosophy. Our philosophy is put money back into the taxpayers' pockets, reinvest into companies, and that's how you have a thriving economy. But folks, I'll tell you, if uh, a left-wing mayor gets in there, we're, we're toast. I'll tell you, it'd be a disaster in my opinion. The federal government is moving forward on a 2021 election promise today. Ministers on Parliament Hill to announce a new steering group that will help create what's been called Canada's Black Justice Strategy. The steering group will develop recommendations to modernize Canada's justice system and address systemic discrimination. My son's 11, but I had a conversation with him three years ago, not about whether or not he will be stopped by police, but what to do when he is. That, that's the reality. Dash, you will drive one day. When you're stopped, make sure both hands are on the wheel. Make sure you're not reaching for anything, Dash. Make sure you're not reaching for identification. Make sure you have it already in your lap. Maintain eye contact. Those are the kinds of conversations that black mothers and fathers have with their kids. With more on the government's black justice strategy, we're now joined by Zila Jones. She's a human rights lawyer who has also been named to the steering group that the government announced today. Ms. Jones, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me here. Uh, so let's begin with your reaction to this. What, what does it mean to you to have a government address the issue of race and to begin this kind of consultation? I think it's really significant for the black community and for Canadians as a whole. As we know, we're now starting to come to grips with Canada's long history of anti-black racism and how that has been operating in some of our laws. 
and how it still impacts communities today disproportionately. And for the government to acknowledge that this is happening and for the government to take steps, concrete steps, to come up with a strategy that will address those inequities and hopefully reduce or eliminate them is a really important moment. Mm -hmm. To acknowledge and not have to fight for acknowledgement. I'm exactly. sure it's huge. Yeah, like even in my lifetime, um, people used to deny that Canada had anti-black racism. They thought it was a US thing. Um, we don't have those problems here. And I think since the death of George Floyd and the public response to that that was international, the conversation's really shifted. And it's really encouraging to see people now grappling with these issues and being willing to address them and talk about them and including the government and also everybody out there so it's really exciting to mm -hmm. live in these times now your part of it is this steering group can you talk to us as to what the work is meant to do what's the task before you well my main job is the author of the report so there are two authors um myself and dr quasi Wusu Bempa, I think is his name. Um, so the two of us are going to be um, writing that report. As part of that, we attend the steering committee meetings and proceedings. And the steering committee, my understanding is that they are the ones that determine the direction um, that the project will take. So they consult with the communities that they're from. They come from different black communities across Canada. So the prairies are represented, Ontario is represented, Quebec is represented, the Maritimes. And as we know, the communities are very diverse in Canada. So there isn't one black community. There are lots of different histories. There are people that have been here for hundreds of years. There's new immigrants and everything in between. And so they will be um, consulting with those communities. I think that's a really important point is that this project is centered around the communities and the people in the communities. This is not the government top down dictating how things will go. It is the communities telling the government and the government listening. And I'm part of facilitating that. And, and telling them specifically their experiences of yes. anti-black racism and how that has what uh, led them to be involved in the, the justice system? Yes, I think, I mean, I hope we will hear from a variety of voices. So people who have had direct involvement in the justice system, people who may have a child or family member that has, people that maybe haven't had a criminal record, but they may have had interactions with police, um, all kinds of different aspects of how, how the justice system has impacted people. And they will be telling us uh, what they need and what um, the injustices are and how those can be remedied. Well, you know, what's interesting is that this falls under the, the, the black justice strategy that the government is pursuing. Mm -hmm. And yet, as you and I speak, how much of this is going to be limited to the justice system? How much of it spills over into the determinants of health and therefore a multi-tiered approach to how to even address anti-black racism? Well, exactly. I think that there's a lot of um, intertwining and intersectionalism among the systems. The education system is notorious for what we call the school to prison pipeline, where young, small children, we sometimes hear about kindergarten kids being har harshly disciplined or suspended or uh, treated as criminals in schools. So how does the education system prime black youth to sometimes be criminalized? How do policies in schools about what you can wear and how you associate impact that? Uh, police in schools we know is an issue. So the education system is very much a part of this. The health system, as you said, is very much a part of this because we know that um, poor health um, outcomes are impacted as well by um, health care you can get in, in the correctional institutions, um, coming out of the correctional institutions, um, and mental health being part of that. Uh, often these people be involved in the criminal justice system. So it will likely encompass a number of things beyond just 
the courts and the jails. Mm -hmm. Now, we were talking beforehand, and you say your job is to create a preliminary report by the end of the year and then a mm -hmm. final report in the spring, and then what, implementation by the end of 2024? That's my understanding, is that um, the government will move to start implementing that right away. And obviously, it's not to say by the end of 2024, our work is done. You know, this, this is generations of um, anti-black racism, and it's going to take time to dismantle that. But what immediate steps can be taken will be taken um, when the report is received, and there will be some things that can be done right away, and then other things that will begin the work. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's an ambitious goal, and I'm wondering yeah. who keeps the government uh, or holds the account government accountable if, for example, after this report, they don't actually implement. Will you be saying something about that? Well, I think the voters do. So obviously, if they don't feel the government has kept their promises, then they vote with their feet. Um, but beyond that, um, I don't know that I would have you know, personal power to tell the government what to do, but certainly my work will be there in that report to be referred to for, for all time. And um, anyone who wants to can refer to that and, and show it to the government and say, hey, you commissioned this report. It says that you're supposed to be doing this. Why aren't you doing it? So my hope is that it will be used that way if necessary, but um, ideally they, they will uphold their commitments. And I'm optimistic that they will. They seem very committed. And we'll just have to see what time brings us. Zila Jones, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And for the record, we did invite Ministers Lametti and Ian to discuss the matter. We look forward to doing that when they are available. That is our program for this Wednesday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow.